0: We will be in Jonah chapter 1. Thank you, everybody, for turning there. Uh, last week, we covered, uh, just for those who uh, didn't hear, we, uh, we covered that, uh, the, the, the foundation work for the reality that God has a heart for every nation on earth. He desires that even though we see in the Old Testament that God has picked an individual race, the Israelites, He picked them so that He could bless every nation. And though we live in, the, uh, in this privileged, blessed time that we can look back from our point of view, this side of the cross, and we can interpret Scripture with, uh, f- with the apostles' help and understand all of these things, God did not wait until the Great Commission. God did not wait until the apostles to, make, uh, to, to start showing clues and actually say quite explicitly and show us through examples like Jonah's story that he wanted to save more than just Israel. I'll say it again, that Israel's salvation was not simply about Israel. It was about the whole world. And even the whole world's, uh, uh, the gospel going to the ends of the earth is not simply about the people in the world. It's about the glory of God. What we need to be convinced of as Christians is that the glory of God is, is most purely and rightly reflected or praised, let me say that again, that God is most purely and rightly glorified in the task of missions more than in any other task that the church can set out to do. Because God is more glorified in the salvation of souls than than of building buildings, in the salvation of, of people more than in anything else. But missions is not just evangelization where the ones and twos come to faith. Missions is, is evangelizing cross-culturally to people groups that don't yet have the gospel. And as the gospel goes into that dark, locked, uh, uh, owned by Satan, kept blinded and bound by, uh, by lies and by the principalities of the air, as Paul will tell us, our war is against. As the gospel goes in there, blows that up and shines the light of Christ in there, Christ is glorified as being the king, as God promised the father to the son in Isaiah 59, God said to the son, he says, it is not enough that you redeem all of the tribes of Israel. That's a great work to do. Come into the world, die for their sins. Amazing, infinitely powerful, that work, but it's still not enough because God is not only the God of the Israelites. He's the God of all people. So the father said to the son in Isaiah 49, you must bring also in people from all nations that is what we see in the task of missions. That is the, the task of the church goes on to, to, to give God the most glory that he can. And we saw last week that, that, that what Jonah had been, done, uh, had been called to do, you'll see this in uh, Jonah chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 3, we went through last week. Jonah had been called as a prophet to come out of his cushy life in Israel, where he was prophesying blessing and flourishing. And God called him to go from there to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. That city which had been already in his lifetime an attack against his people. It's quite likely that he knew people and his extended family killed by Assyrians. Uh, it, Assyria had already, maybe about a hundred years prior, come in and made one of the Israelite kings pay homage to them through, through war. Uh, and, and into the future, Jonah knew the prophecies that Assyria was going to come and flatten the kingdom of Israel, destroy their, their capital city of Samaria. So, so Jonah knowing this, that they're his enemies, that they have killed his people and will kill his people, God says to him, arise, go to Nineveh, I'm going to preach against them. I want you to preach against them because their troubles have come up to me. And in, in a, in a, as we see from chapter four, Jonah did not just not want to go because he, he felt unsafe, that there could have been a part of that, but, but the ultimate motivation was that he didn't want them to hear the word of the Lord, repent, and then be spared. He couldn't forgive them for that. In the, ni- in the 1950s, there was a, a power couple, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot was uh, uh, he was a, a, a young missionary in his 20s in 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 the 1950s he was in his 20s and and he desired while his family had been missionaries in south america he desired to go deeper into the unreached people groups of ecuador and he had identified this this group called the the, the huanari tribe or the, the orca people were in there uh, and he wanted to take the gospel in there, though he was warned how dangerous it was that it was against the law to go into, in there, to, to make contact with this unreached people group. They were otherwise untouched by Western civilization. They were savages. They were at war with neighboring tribes, but he wanted to go. And so at the age of 28, in 1956, he went there with four of his friends, all males. They landed there on the beach, they started making uh, small amounts of contact with those that they could, and then him and his friends were ambushed and speared to death in the shallow waters on that beach. What a waste of life. How many people heard that story of Jim Elliott, a 28-year-old, so much promise, the son of missionaries, and look at that as a waste of life? If that's your understanding, you do not understand the first thing about missions or God's call on his church. Jim Elliott would say uh, in his life, he says, if we are sheep of his pasture, right? that's, that's a biblical picture, the sheep to the shepherd Jesus, he calls us to remember what happened to sheep in the Old Testament. He says, if we are sheep of his pasture, remember that sheep are headed for the altar. Any Christian that ends this life unpersecuted, unexecuted, that's an abnormality. That's a blessing. It's not something we should take for granted. He said, <clears throat> as he was going towards the mission field and people calling him back saying, this is foolishness, this will get you killed. This is not how to spend your life. He says, it is not foolishness. He has, has quite a famous quote where he says, he is no fool who gives away something he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. That was Elliot's mindset. And, and despite the risk he was willing to go and die. Something Jonah could not say for himself. <clears throat> uh, Jim Elliot also says this. Does it make sense? Oh, no, sorry, this was uh, Elizabeth Elliot, his wife. Elizabeth Elliot said, does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying in the things that lie before us today? How many momentous events in Scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured. Do what God tells you to do now. Depend upon it. You will be shown what to do next. It was Elizabeth's confidence. And it did not shake when her husband, who had been married to her for only three years, died in that little tribe and left behind her and a 10-month-old daughter. It didn't shake her confidence. She herself was a daughter of missionaries. She loved the Great Commission. She had gone to college to study for missions and she met her husband at Bible college. That's a pretty common thing. That's where Christians go to find a partner. They go to Bible college. She met this young man, Jim Elliott, and he proposed to her and he said, I will marry you if, what a bold question, will you marry me? But before you say yes, I've got a condition. You have to learn the language of this Ecuadorian Quechua language. You have to learn it so that we can go and be uh, missionaries into that area. Marry me on threat of death and threat of apparently learning this language. That's the kind of guy you say yes to, by the way, ladies. So they were married in 1953. She lost him in 1956. And in the following years, unlike Jonah, she did not hold a grudge against those who had done such a thing to her, who had robbed her of such life of her husband. It's actually told in her book uh, that she wrote called Through the Gates of Splendor. She and some other relatives of the men who died there on that beach went into that same tribe, preached the gospel, were received peacefully, and today that tribe has a uh, thriving church within it since the 1950s. And so it has reached out into other tribes and where savages once ruled, there are now Christians worshiping King Jesus. That was Elizabeth's confidence. She she could have drawn back, but instead she went in and some of the men who had driven spears through her husband's sternum got converted through her own words. She knew the price of the mission, but she knew, she knew her God. She knew that God's purpose was, unlike what Jonah knew, she knew that her God's purpose was to have people for himself from every nation. Somebody had to go to that tribe. It may as well have been her, she thought. So this was last week. This is what we, we learned last week is that that's the basis of missions. Why does the church reach out? Why does the church spend money to support people and send them to poor parts of the world and unreached parts of the world? It's because God from eternity past has covenanted that he would save people from every tribe, tongue, and language. We have to have that confidence. But tonight we're going to see, and and then taking here from Jonah's story, we're going to see that the confidence of missions, the confidence of a missionary, the confidence of us to send missionaries or I pray, and, and I'm not trying to be quiet or secret about this, I want you to pray to consider whether or not God would call you at whatever point in life you're at to go to a foreign nation where Jesus is not yet widely known to preach Jesus, maybe die, I'll see you in heaven. We don't need you here. We, we need to, to fulfill the mission. So while, you, while I hope that you are praying that, what, what can be your confidence? Like how should you think about the call to missions in light of all the hardships that come? How should you think about God calling you to missions considering all of the opposition you get, your own sin? The confidence of missions, as we're going to see in the story of Jonah, is the sovereignty of God over all things. Being sure of that, confident of that, empowers missions like nothing else. I'm going to read here Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, down to 16, the rest of the chapter, and you will see that the drama unfold. And then we're going to go back through and... And see, all the things that God is sovereign over and how God is is showing to us in in this Old Testament tale, how he's showing to us these clues of the great commission to come. So uh, may you open your Bible in front of you. uh, Have it on your lap. This is how the ESV reads. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid. Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. This is probably uh, two-sided dice, right? They start gambling. And, they, and the lot fell on Jonah. I bet Jonah saw that coming. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account is this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of whose people are you? Rapid fire. Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Okay, yes or no, that that doesn't sound like a very accurate statement at this point in Jonah's life. I am a God-fearing man, and so I have fled from his command. Yeah, sounds rich, Jonah, but that's how he identifies himself. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, apparently. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then these men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? Because the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, these men rowed hard to get back to dry land but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not, us, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifice to the Lord Yahweh and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. May God bless to us the reading of his own inerrant, precious word. Friends, who sent the storm? <clears throat> who sent the fish at the end? Who calmed the storm halfway through? Who was punishing Jonah? Who was hearing the prayers of the men all over and over and over throughout this text? We see it's God completely in charge at every single juncture. We need to see, though, what we learned last week, or what at least from what we read last week, is that God is sovereign over his people as he calls them to obey. God called to Jonah. He said, go up and go to Nineveh. God doesn't suggest things. God doesn't commend things. His plans are not written in pencil, handed over to you to make any edits that you want. God reserves the right as Lord, as master who made you, but then also redeemed you in Christ from your sin. He reserves the right to demand obedience. There's no such thing as, 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 as considering obedience or, or, or just theologizing around about the, the, prom- the, the commands of God. There's, there's disobedience and there's obedience when a call of God comes. And before any of us, as we said last week, think that we, we, we are maybe in the same position as Jonah, maybe not in the same position. How do I know I'm called? Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, you're called to work at the Great Commission, to the fulfillment of the gospel across all nations. Jesus said to every Christian, that his last commission is binding on every Christian, to go out into all the world to make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and then discipling them teaching them all that Jesus has told us to do and then repeat that that my friends is on us so there is such a thing as being uh, fulfilling that where you're born And there is such a thing as fulfilling that in the going to the nations. We're not saying that no one can stay in the country of your birth, but what we are saying is that if you are here, make sure it is because you know that you can fulfill that here. That as you pray to the Lord about where he would lead you, guide you and send you, you're convinced that this is where it is, at least for now. And if not, then you find yourself where Jonah has been fleeing from the will of God, and that is not a safe place to be. God maintains sovereignty, authority over his people. That's why the Great Commission starts out with, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, hear my command. Therefore, since Jesus is authoritative Thus we obey. <clears throat> but there's more, there's more. Because last week we also saw that as Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, or go, go to the country of Assyria, we might think how strange it is that God would sort of go to a nation that he's not the God of and judge them for sin according to laws that, that they don't have. Do you think that way? Do you think that every nation on earth is just sort of running a mark and in its own way and that they're leading themselves and it's bad for them, but, but, but there's no really covenant between them and God, which God can pull them up on? At least with Israel, God had written covenant, which he could pull them up on and then judge them on, a, on the basis of. Yes, maybe you think you can do that to Christians, but other nations, it's not like that. What you fail to realize or a theological realization you need to have is what is called the covenant. Of creation. You probably know, you've heard said that people, all human beings, from conception to death, are in the image of God. What we're saying there is that God has made human beings in covenant with himself, that that he's made them. Our own nature is that we are in the image of God. We we have eternal lives that we'll spend eternity in heaven or in hell. We have intellectual ability. We have relational, covenantal, societal, natural parts of us. That's all a part of it. But in that is because everybody's in the image of God, everybody is therefore held accountable in covenant to God. So there's no one in the world who can say, God has never spoken to me. God has never commanded things to me. I don't know him. The reality is that every single human being is bound by law to God. You might say they don't receive the written law. They don't have the Bible in every nation. True, But Romans 2 tells us that the conscience that every human being has is not just happenstance. It's not just that everybody seems to have the same convictions in their heart. That's written there by the finger of God. Therefore, it's on those commandments, on the basis of those, obeying them or breaking them, that God holds every nation, every person accountable. So God is sovereign over all nations, He's not a God who just relates to Israel and then just to Christianity. He created all things, all people, every nation, and therefore has the right, at his will, to pluck up one of his prophets, send him to a faraway country, and judge him for sin, or forgive them when they repent. That is God's right. He is sovereign. That feeds into the confidence that you can have, that we can have if ever we go. Any piece of ground, underneath any nation's sovereignty that you step, Jesus is on the throne over that nation. No matter what the tribal chief threatens you with, he is answering to God. That is the reality we have to reckon with. But I'm getting carried away. So so next, God is also sovereign over all of creation. Now we're we're into tonight's text. Look at verse 4. And it just so happened that wind came across Jonah's path. No, Jonah fled from God's presence. God whipped up a massive Mediterranean storm and pegged it at his rebellious prophet. It says here that he hurled the storm at the sea. So much so that the, the ship that these guys are in, and this is a big ship because it's got multiple layers or, or, or um, uh, 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 decks within it that is holding cargo. And it's got quite a large uh, um, uh, 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 crew on it. This large ship is threatening to break into pieces because of the wind and the waves. God sent that. God sent that wind. He's sovereign over all creation. So, And then it's, it's him that is going to uh, bring it to nothing, that is going to cease it and bring it into, uh, into peace. So, so, so maybe you need to know this. You go, don't fear malaria, don't fear disease, don't fear the storms, don't fear a plane crash. Every single piece of it is under the intricate planning of our sovereign God. For judgment, in Jonah's case, if we will flee from the call, Or in fulfilment of his mission, in Jonah's case, also, if we would be in the will of the Lord, God is sovereign over creation. Let's let's also see this though that what you see is is these men who are obviously pagans, right? They're all they're going into the into the uh, and and it's a bad storm. I know, I'm, I'm sure some of us have been in storms that have made us afraid. Have you ever been in a storm that makes shipmates afraid? I don't know whether you've ever known like a like a sea hardened uh, fisherman. Not one of the dudes that goes down to Manly and throws in a fishing rod. They're men too, good. But I'm talking the burly guys who wear those rubbery pant things with with hands like claws, calluses everywhere, beards as scarves, half an eye plucked out by the last swordfish they ripped open with their hands. Those kind of guys, when they're afraid and throwing away their entire livelihood and savings so that this whole trip is going to be unprofitable, it's that or death. When that kind of storm comes, you know it is an intense storm. And so they're crying out all to their own God. And then they find Jonah asleep. They find Jonah sleeping. And they, they beg him also, cry out to your God. We're trying everything. Go and knock on your guy's door. Somebody's got to hear us. Somebody's got to save us. It's that or death. Please help. And then you see here, they, they cast lots. Here's again, God is sovereign over coincidences. God is sovereign over the lot. The, the Proverbs tells us that the, the man throws a dice into his lap and every single outcome is from the Lord. There is not an ounce. There is not an atom, a molecule, a speck of dust that floats in the sky. There is nothing outside of God's intentional, exact, sovereign will. The lots are cast. They fall on Jonah. He's realizing it. If he, was, if he was thinking that the wind coming after him was God hot on his heels, when, when these lot are cast and it falls on him, he knows for sure this is God coming after him. God sovereign over coincidences. Then they said to him, uh, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they fire off these five rapid questions. In other words, just tell us what the heck you have done. We are, we are uh, afraid for our life. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. They were exceedingly afraid, saying, what have you done? Now what he tells to them is, here's the solution. Pick me up, throw me into the ocean, just kill me. It's my fault. A heck of a thing to tell people that, why didn't he just jump? Why has he got to make them murderers? Why why do they have to do it? Well, he apparently comes to no decisions himself. Here's Jonah throwing himself on their mercy. If you really want to live, throw me into the ocean. And their response, I think, is pretty reasonable. They go, nah, bad idea. Start rowing as hard as they can back back to dry land because he's just told them all this storm, it's happening because I, I, a prophet of God, have run from him. What's he going to do if we kill his prophet? Yet, yeah, no thanks. Let's, let's dodge that bullet and get out of here. They start rowing back. It cannot be done. They cannot fight the purposes of God. And eventually they say, and they cry out here. You'll see this over in uh, verse 14. They cry out and say, oh Lord, don't blame us for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. In other words, they're saying, we're going to throw him overboard. Don't judge us as murderers, please. We've done what we can to protect him. And then they say, they they know God's sovereignty. They say, oh Lord, you have done as it pleased you. Yes, God is sovereign over this situation. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Here's what I want us to see though. God is sovereign over the lost hearts of individuals. And God just throws in this, this, This he could have not included in Jonah, he could have not brought this about to happen in the story, but it is so, so intentional. No, no word of scripture just happened to land there. It's intentional. While Jonah's fleeing in rebellion, while God is punishing and disciplining and bringing him back and throwing a, a, a hellish storm at him, in and because of that situation, God brings pagan individuals to be regenerate worshippers of God. What, what, what can we say other than Romans 11? How, how, how intricate is the wisdom of God that he brings all things to work according to his pleasure. And I can tell by your faces, you're not at all convinced that these guys are legit worshipers of God. I, I understand that, right? These are pagan fishermen. They, they swear like sailors. They act like them. They're, they're chewing tobacco. They've just thrown an innocent man overboard at sea. They're, they're superstitious, all of this. But you need to see here that they are saved in this moment by Yahweh. While the man who knew everything about God that there was to know was running from his presence, these men have such a powerful experience with him, they are converted. It says in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord. That is Yahweh. That is not just generic gods. They feared Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, exceedingly. Other versions will say they genuinely worshipped the Lord. They feed him exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You need to know, this is not happening on the ship. They're not cutting animals' throats and giving offerings on the ship. Number one, because they've thrown all of their cargo overboard, remember? There's nothing left on the ship to sacrifice. A massive oxen would not remain behind. Just, there's a clue. That's one of the first ones to go. <laughs> Sorry vegans cows can't swim yes they killed all their cows and and but what what's happened here is when it says they 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 offer sacrifices this is not an uncommon thing to happen in ancient near east what we need to see is happening is that they landed up on uh, on dry land after the storm They've all had this enormously powerful, scary experience of this God, Yahweh. Can you imagine? This was not commonplace. Don't think Old Testament times. It was all just like Narnia. It's all miraculous and crazy. They're normal dudes who know how the oceans work. They read the skies. It told them it would be a peaceful day. Then the most severe storm they'd ever experienced came upon them and ceased in a second when they threw the prophet of Yahweh overboard this was powerful what has happened is that they've come on bo- they've come to dry land they're not making sacrifices here the language here is that they've gone and made sa- offered sacrifices they've gone this is not uncommon this is by no way a stretch of the imagination what they would have done is gone and found a place suitable for making sacrifices that's what would be done in the old uh, Old Testament times, if, if, a, if another nation wanted to sacrifice to a certain God, most usually they would go and find the place where that God was worshipped. Friends, the God of Israel had only instituted one place for worship, for acceptable worship and sacrifices. There is every reason to believe that these sailors fearful for their lives, saved by Yahweh, came to dry land, asked the nearest people that they found in Joppa, where do we worship Yahweh of Israel, got pointed towards the temple, came to the temple, made sacrifices, were accepted. And then it says here, and they made vows. That's language for for promising regular worship. Maybe you remember in Solomon's day when the Queen of Sheba in North Africa comes to Solomon's temple, sees it, worships God there, and then makes vows, and then every year they would send a party to go and worship Yahweh. That's similar language here. We have every reason to think that despite and in fact because of Jonah's rebellion, God saved his elect, maybe a handful, maybe a dozen, we don't know. But pagan sailors from Joppa, he brings them to saving faith in in Israel's Messiah that is to come. And they, they are year by year would be making sacrifices according to their vows. God includes that, first of all, to shame Jonah. But second of all, to remind us of his utter and complete sovereignty. He saves people like the jailer that Paul is gone and thrown into jail before. He saves people that, that we would not think that he's working in. God saves people in order to shock us. God saves people because that is what the mission entails. There's one more thing that I want to I point out, and this, is, this really only would become of any significance after the time that Acts... became uh, became written down in Christian history hundreds of years later. 700, uh, in fact, probably about 800 years later. In Acts chapter 10, we have a story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it is the story, and maybe you're aware of it, it is so significant in scriptural history. It's the story of Peter, you can write this down for later reading, the story of the Apostle Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is, is, is somebody who wants to worship and tries to worship Yahweh, but is himself not an Israelite. And he's not yet saved. He's not actually converted. He's not within the covenant of God's grace. And what God does is that he, is that he sends to Peter a vision saying to go to this man Cornelius so that you can preach the gospel to him and this is just after God has confirmed to Peter that the Gentiles are no longer unclean. This is where that, that commonly, that, or that, that, uh, that maybe a famous saying, you're aware of it. In Acts chapter 10, it says, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. And, and after that vision, God sends him. He preaches the gospel. Cornelius is saved. His whole family is saved. Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and all of the Jewish believers, including the apostles, the whole Christian church in Judea is amazed at what is happening. Did God really just save pagans, Gentiles, the same way that he saves us Jews? Friends, that whole thing happened while Peter was at Joppa, the self-same town not mentioned between the book of Jonah, as far as I can see, between the book of Jonah and the book of Acts, that town of Joppa never gets a mention. But here is the connection. Back then, God saved men for no reason other than his sovereign electing grace. And there, Paul uh, Peter, is also sent to see the same thing happen at Joppa. What Jonah has been showing us is that God has people everywhere not people that look like us, who act like us, have cultural similarities to us, or a Jewish, or anything. Wherever they are, we can trust. God is sovereign and can bring people to faith. If you don't believe that, never, ever preach the gospel. If you believe that men have to uh, uh, bring up in themselves a, uh, a will to believe, if you believe that God offers the gospel and then leaves people to make their own decisions don't bother preaching, it's powerless. Men are dry bones in a valley, they're dead, they won't respond. But if you can look at the story of Peter, if you can look at the story of Jonah and say, that's what I believe. God can rock up in a scene and bring people to saving faith in and of his own sovereign, life-giving power, you have disqualified as somebody who must be preaching the gospel. So many wonderful things going on here in Jonah, but I'm going to bring us to a close because we just can't keep going. But here I want to tell you this little story. For this is the confidence, as we've said, this is the confidence that missionaries can have. The darkest days, your most troublesome days, days of storm, whatever it is, God is sovereign. And if you put your hands to the mission field, God will never leave you on your own. This is a book called To the Golden Shore. It's the, it's the life story of Adoniram Judson, America's first uh, uh, or second, depending on how you look at it, first Baptist missionary sent out, and he went to serve in the island, uh, in the, island the country of India until God had other plans. Turned him uh, through many different terrible situations to go to Burma. There's a, but, but I want to say to you that though Judson went and, and he suffered much, but still today in Myanmar, modern day Burma, there are millions of people who call Jesus their king, their savior, and are saved in the kingdom of God just like you and I because of Judson's labor. But that great fruit came at so many minor and major and confusing inconveniences and troubles and trials. There's this, uh, this point in 1814 where him and his wife, Nancy, they're, they're on their way to go to, in fact, India. And so they've, they've been on, on a ship and they land in the Isle of France, uh, a little island in, in, the, in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, and, and they land there, and what they're waiting for is their friends, the, the, the other couple who are pregnant. They're very excited because they're going to come. They're going to meet the baby for the first time. This 12-month boat trip has left them very, uh, very excited. And so uh, they, they land. They're waiting for their friends to arrive. And, and as the ship pulls in and the, the little messenger boat comes to the shore before the, the whole uh, uh, crew come, come to shore, they send a messenger out to tell them that Harriet, the mother, and this newborn baby... Have died. Their only friends, the, the only Europeans in Myanmar at this point, basically, are, 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 sorry, on, in, in this area, are going to be Judson, his wife Nancy, and their best friends, and now their newborn baby. But that baby and that mother arrive dead, and they're buried in the Isle of France. Well, it was very depressing for them, and, and, uh, but they, they powered on, and it was, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing the, the, the perseverance that they had. But Nancy herself, Judson's wife, was also pregnant. She was heavily pregnant. And much like Jonah, they, they got on a boat. They, they just had to leave where they were. The government was cracking down on European missionaries. They wanted to get them all out. And so Judge, Judson just, just goes, you know, runs down to the port, finds the next ship leaving. And they find one that's not going to India, that that, that is not going to Calcutta, where the other English missionaries were. It was going to Myanmar, which was not the plan. But they hopped on board. They went anyway. And as they went, Nancy, heavily pregnant, had hired a maid to help her give birth on the boat. That's a good idea. Judson did not want to be in that room at that time. Nancy had hired a maid. She was going to help her, a little, a little nursing assistant. And one day in to the, sh- to the ship voyage, that woman drops dead in a fit and dies. They throw her overboard. Pointless. Why is God even including these, these hardships in their story? They're out there giving their life for the gospel. What, what's God doing? Well, here's Nancy. She's heavily pregnant. The, 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 the ship uh, takes off and, and is caught in multiple heavy storms. Nancy gives birth on her own, no one to support bu- except for her husband. And the child, who is going to be finally, this, this glimpse of life in this dying world, is born dead. The third death in their little circle in just a few weeks. Distressed as she is and grieving though she is, they have to bury their daughter and they keep on going and, 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 and they, they don't stop. They, they are still convinced that God has a plan for them in to Burma. <clears throat> this, is what, this is what Judson uh, says. <clears throat> the baby was born dead. For a while, it looked as if Nancy, growing more and more exhausted from the continual tossing of the ship, would have been buried in the waters as well. But she continued on. There's one point that, that uh, Judson says this, uh, that says the following while they, are, um, uh, while they are on this ship going towards Burma. That is a ticket from Myanmar that just fell out of it. This is my bookmark when we went to Myanmar on a mission trip. There she is. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, so, so they're going towards Myanmar, still not wanting to go there. They wanted to go to India where there's other missionaries. They don't want to go in this, the, half of their team is dead now. They don't want to go to, Mi- to Myanmar. But as God had taken them on this deeply painful voyage, they came to the conviction that God was calling them to Burma. Nancy says this, the poor Burmans are entirely destitute of those consolations and joys which constitute our happiness as Westerners? And why should we be unwilling to part with a few fleeting, inconsiderable comforts for the sake of making them sharers with us in joys exalted as heaven, durable as eternity? We cannot expect to do much in such a rough, uncultivated field, yet if we may be instrumental in the removing of some of the rubbish and preparing the way for others to come, it will be a sufficient reward for us. I've been accustomed to view this field of labor with dread and terror, but now, now I feel perfectly willing to make it my home the rest of my life. And so they decided. Her, and as Adoniram remarked, they were dissuaded by all of their friends but they commended themselves to God and embarked the 22nd of June. No matter how dark the day got, they were convinced God has people in Burma. We have to go and preach. God has a heart for every nation. We have to believe that. And the reason we can believe and be confident in missions is because God is sovereign and can bring about that plan. uh, Is that your confidence? Is that your confidence? Jonah ultimately also points us towards Jesus Christ. Jesus calls himself somebody better than Jonah. Jesus was also a prophet who heard God's voice and call. But he was a prophet who obeyed instead of running. Jesus was a prophet who came to his enemies, us, instead of running away to comfort. Jesus also fell asleep during a storm in his life, but he was asleep because he was confident in the will of God, not because he was foolish and ignorant. Jesus stood up on the deck of that ship and had the power to calm the storm because Jesus was the incarnate Yahweh who speaks to oceans. Jesus, instead of bringing others to death through his sin. He surrenders himself to death because of our sin. Jonah died for his own... uh, Jonah was thrown into the sea, at least, for his own sin. Jesus was thrown under the wrath of God for others' sins. People did did not go to the temple when Jesus calmed the storm and and gave himself to death. They did not go to the temple elsewhere to worship. They came to the presence of Jesus and worshipped. Jesus brings to himself worshippers from all backgrounds, just as God, through the story of Jonah, was bringing to himself people from all backgrounds. That's what Jonah is ultimately pointing to. And I have to ask, is that you? Are you someone who today have still, in hearing all of this, in finding in Jesus, somebody much greater, much more more, more miraculous than Jonah, he has died, he has risen so that sinners, whoever you are, can come to Jesus and be saved, can be accepted by God. Have you been? Or are you still outside due your own justice and judgment and condemnation from God? Believe in Jesus, be saved, and get on mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jonah. We thank you for your grace that bore with him. But we thank you for the book that shows us that you are sovereign in and through everything, even our foolish mistakes. Put into our mind, God, eternity like Nancy Judson, take our eyes off all of these comforts of the world that we want to hold on to instead of serving you and help us to let go of them so that other people can grasp eternal joys in the gospel. Help us, Lord, to trust you as sovereign, to speak boldly of the gospel that you have declared through your son, Jesus, and this very day, Lord. May you speak life as you did into those godless sailors out there on the ocean. May you please speak your sovereign word and bring sinners to life even today. Bring them to yourself. Regenerate, transform, and mature them in this church. We love you, God. We trust you for your glorious grace. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.